Welcome to episode four of Painting the Corners, the baseball and international affairs podcast. My two guests today are Tanya Domi and Steve Goldman. We cover a lot of ground in this discussion, including Tanya's warning about an increased Russian role in the Balkans and what that might mean, the international movement for LGBT equality, the end of Big Pappy's career, and maybe placing that in a bigger context about baseball. We also talk about how sports journalism has changed over the last couple of decades, a little reminiscing about the great Tiger teams in the mid-1980s, and somehow we managed to talk, as usual, a little, a little bit about this current presidential race. Let me tell you a little bit about our guest. Tanya is an adjunct professor of international public affairs at Columbia University, at SIPA. She's also an affiliate faculty member of the Harriman Institute there. She has worked internationally for more than a decade on issues relating to democratic transitional, de- transitional development, political and media development, human rights, gender and sexual identity issues, and human trafficking. So she is a scholar and practitioner. That's the perspective she brings to this. She is currently writing a book on the emerging LGBT human rights movement in the Western Balkans. And if you want to hear more from Tanya, she tweets at Tanya Domi, that's T-A-N-Y-A-D-O-M-I, and blogs at tanyadomi.blogspot.com. She will be also hosting a a conference called The Rise of International Authoritarianism in the Western Balkans at Columbia University on October 21st, and I will be moderating the first panel on that. So if you like the discussion between me and Tanya, try to make that conference. You can find more about that at the Harriman Institute website. Steve Goldman is a sports columnist for Vice.com. He's been a professional writer since the mid-'90s. He was the creator and host of Pinstripe Bible, which was a, I would say, seminal Yankee blog for Yankee fans, and I'm sure some of you are familiar with that. And he kind of pioneered the team format, and there then became a regular contributor to MLB.com and the Yes Network. He was also part of the very influential site and book, Baseball Prospectus, which he edited seven volumes of their best-selling annual, New York Times best-selling annual, and as well as some of their other books, Mind Games, that Ain't Over Till It's Over, and Extra Innings, More Baseball Between the Numbers. He also was the editor-in-chief of their website at BaseballPerspectives.com. Steve wrote a book called Forging Genius about Casey Stengel, and it's a great look at the early years of Casey Stengel's managing career when he was in the National League, when he wasn't the famous, you know, five times in a row World Series winner with the Yankees. He also writes, has also written for Commentary, American History Illustrated, and many websites, and his most recent non-baseball book, or work, is called We Used to Believe, Fantasies of Institutional Democracy in the 1960s Hollywood, and he wrote that for Oscilloscope Musings, and he wrote that on two films about presidential politics. The Best Man and Advise and Consent. Steve tweets at Go Stephen Goldman, that's Stephen with a V, and you can also find his writings, recent writings on the Vice website. Let me just add a few quick logistical notes. This podcast is now available on iTunes and Stitcher, so you can just go there and subscribe. If you like what you hear here, please review us and rate us. If you want to follow me on Twitter, my handle is at Lincoln Mitchell, and I'm on Instagram at Lincoln A. Mitchell. You can also visit my website, lincolnmitchell.com, and you can reach me on email at lincoln at lincolnmitchell.com. My new book, Will Big League Baseball Survive? Globalization, the End of Television, Youth Sports, and the Future of Major League Baseball is now available for pre-order. And you can pre-order it at Amazon, Powell's, or directly to the publisher, which is Temple University Press. And please keep listening, and I will let you know about events uh, that we are putting together to promote that book. And if you'd like me to do a discussion about the book or a talk or to interview me about it, please reach out to me. I hope you enjoyed this chat with Tanya and Steve as much as I did. Okay, Tanya and Steve, thank you for joining us today. Let me just begin with, with you, Tanya. Tanya, you've been working on Balkans issues for a very long time, and this is something that, you know, 20 years ago, to the extent Americans paid attention to foreign policy, it was something we paid a lot of attention to. Dayton happened, a lot of, you know, September 11th happened, and this all kind of faded from people's conscience. The Balkans, of course, haven't gone away. Right. So what I want maybe you could begin by telling us 
what are you working on and why is it something that we should be concerned about, that we should mm-hmm. care about? What should we be thinking about? Well, if you think about the Balkans, historically speaking, you know, the first uh, war of the 20th century started there when, uh, when uh, the head of the Austrian-Hungarian Empire was assassinated by a Serb on the streets of Sarajevo. The last two wars of the 20th century were fought in Sarajevo and in Serbia. Um, and so it bears, bears uh, to keep in mind that um, while attentions have gone elsewhere, there has been a rise of not only authoritarian leaders in the Western Balkans, but now we see the rise of authoritarian uh, international actors in the Balkans that are basically uh, being able to wield their influence in soft power ways uh, freely. And I'm talking now about Vladimir Putin and about Erdogan from Turkey. So we see uh, a big, big presence there and the United States has really taken a back seat on these issues. They've ceded uh, authority and leadership, quite frankly, to the EU. And the EU has been under tremendous pressure, and they've been in continuous crisis since 2008 and the crash of the euro. So maybe we could talk through this Putin and Erdogan, because there's this strange, I mean, kind of structurally, these regimes don't look radically different from each other. And these two characters as leaders to me, don't seem radically different from each other. And they've had some tensions in the last 12 months, That's right. and maybe we're getting past that. But in, in the Balkans, they seem to have, you know, in very general terms, historically different clients, right? Um, so how does, that, how does that shake out in, in the region? I think what's interesting about uh, Russia and its relationship with Serbs, and specifically the Serbian Republic and the Serb entity of Bosnia and Herzegovina, yes, RS, what you see is, the, you know, they've been wearing out the tarmacs between Banja Luka and Moscow and Moscow to Belgrade. And there's a lot of back and forth, and it's a mutually opportunistic relationship, and it's been going on for centuries. But now there is this soft power overture that, Putin is exacting through the manipulation of media. He's buying media outlets. Russia Today is broadcasting in Serbian. The Sputnik News uh, web platforms now operating in Serbia. Uh, just uh, on last Sunday, a unfortunate referendum was staged by the RS president, Milorad Dodik, uh, which is people believe is one step towards secession where... The electorate overwhelmingly supported the RRS's non-recognition of the Bosnian Constitutional Court. And, uh, and on Thursday, before that referendum took place, Milorad Dodik flew to Moscow to confer with Vladimir Putin, who supported that referendum. I, I was very curious, actually, because, uh, given what you say about Putin, because, you know, it seems to me looking back at... Uh, the Bosnian War say that this was a uh, obviously it was a great humanitarian disaster and 
uh, many people died, but it was also, by the standards of, of what we're seeing today, say in Syria, very contained, and it was over in, uh, or to a large extent, over in three, four years. There was a decisive NATO intervention, and, uh, and again, I could be being very glib about this, so mm -hmm. feel free to cor correct me. Uh, and the Dayton Accords, it was the, the difference between what we saw then uh, with NATO being able to intervene and the war being able to be brought to a relatively rapid close and what we're seeing today in places like Syria mm -hmm. that the Russians were generally sidelined in the early 1990s because the Soviet Union had just fallen so that they were not able to exert uh, or didn't have the attention span to exert a lot of influence on that situation? Well, I mean, what, what we're seeing now, though, uh, 20 years later, and Dayton was never intended to last for 20 years. It was seen as a... Um, it was seen as a, the opportunity to stop a war, stop the killing. But as someone who worked on the implementation of Dayton, all of us knew fairly quickly that in less than three years, we knew that it would not actually establish a thriving democracy. Now, post-2008, across all of Southeast Europe, as all the economies are in bad shape, in Bosnia in particular, we're looking at depression levels of unemployment, 40% formal unemployment among youth, it's nearly 60%, and people are leaving. So we're seeing, we're witnessing a massive brain drain. Why? While Dodik and, and, uh, and his brethren, some of his brethren over in Belgrade, are doing everything they can to initiate instability. Uh, and this is, is supported by Putin, who's also, Russia plays a role in the Peace Implementation Council, which oversees Dayton. Dayton has really ossified. Nothing has moved forward on Dayton since 2006, when Patty Ashdown was the last uh, high representative uh, responsible for implementation who actually had the touch and feel of a retail politician was very effective, did a lot of movement forward, and in his departure, nothing has occurred. And, and in your discussion, it's, it's impossible to listen to you discussing Russian presence and what the Russian president is doing without, and have it sound new, right? This is, this is, a, this is not a new play in the Russian playbook. We have seen variations of this really to a very bad outcome in Ukraine primarily, but also in Georgia. Mm -hmm to a lesser extent. Do you see this heating up to that point? I mean, that, that, would, that would be something that, that would be make this, you know, of global significance. Sure. What's fascinating about the situation right now in Serbia is that they're broke and they need money, and so they are appealing to Brussels and pursuing the EU accession process. They're getting funding from the UAE for a new airline they've launched, Serbia. Serbia Airlines, and they're doing a waterfront development in Belgrade that's very opaque, and there's no public commenting, and very controversial It's being funded by the UAE. But at the same time, what is happening is that uh, Vucic, Prime Minister Vucic, has invited the Russian military in to do exercises, they signed a partnership with NATO uh, several years ago, and yet they withdrew, they st actually, excuse me, they also signed a neutrality agreement with Russia in March, what the president did. So they're playing things, and it's, it's dangerous because they're, 
They're talking to Brussels and they're trying to play that game. They're working with Moscow. They're inviting media presence in. There's a lot of conversations going back and forth. They're escalating with military exercises. They had a, a, a year ago, too, where they had airborne special troops in Serbia uh, actually uh, carrying out airborne exercises in joint combined air, air um military uh, exercises. And the other thing that's interesting about it is that um, there are some analysts believe, because the Russians, uh, Russian military has been there for quite some time, a lot of people believe because of the withdrawal by the United States and the EU's very low profile on these matters, that the Russian military may be there for some time to come. And what does that mean? That's a big question. So could it escalate? Uh, it remains to be seen, but he is definitely exerting hard and soft power in ways that is relatively new and recent uh, as compared to the past. Correct me if I'm wrong yeah. on this, but there's a tradition in that uh, part of the world when, when it was Yugoslavia and that as, as opposed to some of the other uh, Soviet bloc countries that emerged after World War, that under Tito, they were a little bit uh, more successful at resisting direct Russian influence and not having their uh, politics or government, governance subsumed as completely as some of the, the other Eastern European countries were. Yeah, so, Tito, Tito yeah, asked them to leave in 1948. So uh, is that still something that, that they're aware of in the sense that they're playing with fire if they're inviting a Russian military presence or a greater Russian influence that in a, in a way they're rejecting this, mm -hmm. this, uh, the, the independence that they were able to maintain? Actually, right now, uh, according to uh, really uh, highly regarded uh, po uh, polling results, Russia is the number one... Uh, preferred country outside of the Balkans by the by Serbian population and the lowest approvals in the United States of America as well as NATO. And that's and, and Serbia of course is I mean this is you know if this were when there was all Yugoslavia, right. it's a different public you would get if you polled the, the countries that once were Yugoslavia, you get very different data on that, right? That's I mean, right. Obviously. That's right. And and Serbia his I mean you know Serbia Historically and certainly since the end of the Yugoslavia, had much closer ties to Russia. This that's is right. that piece isn't new. I think, I think you know one thing that's striking to me is if we go back to Dayton, a, a major global difference between now and then is Russia has much more power and money now than that's it did. That's right. Then. And so you wouldn't have gotten data with today's Russia. That's right. And the other thing is remember that Bill Clinton they were very weak as as both of you pointed out, and Bill Clinton had invited a Russian brigade into the peace enforcement. Uh, during the I4S4 NATO presence, and they were part of the partnership, including Ukraine, Ukrainian troops, and the United States fed both troops, which is very interesting. And then on the day that the NATO bombing was to begin, that Russian brigade broke for the Pristina uh, airport, trying to race there and get there before the Brits did. And there's a, I mean, similarly, the Russian yeah. peacekeepers in Abkhazia, who were not keeping peace in the conventional sense of that of that phrase. I want to I want to dramatically change subjects because sure. because when we were when we were walking before you got here, Steve, we were Tanya and I were chatting, and, and Tanya told me that the, the her first big league game she attended 
was a Yankee Red Sox game. I assume because you were based in Massachusetts in yeah, Fenway Park. I was, yeah, I was in the Army in, in uh, Fort Devens, and my first major league game was at Fenway mm-hmm. in, in 1974 between the Yankees and the Red Sox, and I had never heard so much profanity <laughs> as, uh, as I did at that game. And it was so cool. I mean, the big, you know, the green monster, Bobby Mercer at home plate. Uh, you know, it was it was an unforgettable experience but, as a kid. And 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 um, I was nineteen then. That's close enough. Yeah. And and now you live in New York, so so maybe at some point you can weigh in on where you stand on 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 probably the second most intense rivalry <laughs> in, in Major League Baseball. But so we just finished Giants Dodgers. Um, we we just we just finished a series, not we, but the the two teams just finished a series in in uh, Yankee Stadium, the new Yankee Stadium this weekend, which was interesting for a couple of reasons. One, the Yankees swept them, which doesn't right. happen too much these days for a team that is you know certainly the Red Sox are bound. They you know they're they've clinched the AL East. They're going to the playoffs. Right, and they certainly look like one. They look like a strong team. They could go pretty far this thing, but they swept them. Um, David Ortiz, who is an extraordinary Yankee killer over the last many many years. Uh, played his last games at Yankee Stadium. I know, I talk to a lot of Yankee fans. I live in northern Manhattan. No one I know is shedding tears about David Ortiz retiring. <laughs> um, <laughs> on the other hand, on the other hand, he's 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 been a very controversial beloved in, in Massachusetts, New England, for obvious reasons. Less beloved in New York, and 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 I think in in his own way a an interesting and divisive figure among in, in the Yankee land. So I'm wondering how significant a pl- baseball player is David Ortiz. Very. Uh, it's a it's a very complicated question that you ask. I do I do want to say, uh, vis-a-vis your your first experience, uh, and and seventy four they were they were getting good. You know, um, yeah, both they, teams were getting good. Right. They uh, one of the most instructive experiences of my life, and this was after I became a, a baseball writer, uh, but I was I think in my mid twenties, uh, right around the time I I did quote unquote start getting paid to do this. I was walking down Newberry Street in Boston. Uh, it was a beautiful uh, June evening twilight, uh, the lights were on, people were out, you know how that street can be, and uh, a bicycle, I don't know, took a wrong turn in traffic and swerved in front of this car, the the car threw on the brakes, the guy on the bicycle fell down, I don't think there was actual contact, but it was a very scary moment, and there, there were two guys in suits who got out of the car, and they were very concerned with the bicycle, like, oh my god, are you okay, uh, and then they noticed that the guy who was lying on the asphalt had a Yankees cap on, and they immediately shifted from, oh my god, are you okay, to you bleeping bleep, what the bleep is wrong with you, and I swear they were going to start kicking him, and that's when I got, got out of there, it was a very scary moment, but, um, the, you know, the, and, and this goes to what you were saying about David Ortiz, um, you know, in, in some ways you're asking the wrong guy because I'm very much a, a kind of post-partisan, uh, non-denominational baseball fan at this stage of my life. I, I was raised as a Yankee fan, but, you know, when your your hobby becomes your avocation, it changes your relationship to it. And uh, I just, you know, enjoy the, the stories that the sport allows me to tell more than I do uh, rooting for any particular team. And some of that is also that I got to work very closely with the Yankees and be around the Yankees. And when you see how the sausage is made, uh, it be, sometimes becomes a little difficult in, you know, to separate in your mind the people upstairs who are possibly not being very nice to you personally versus the players who are on the field and are just doing their And who thing. may not be very nice to you personally, but oh, they're no, just playing yeah. baseball. Do you know what? I've, I've gone into clubhouses... And I, you know, I don't do a lot of straight reportage. I'm, I'm more of a essayist and a commentator and that kind of analyst. But when I have done reportage, I've talked to players who were very nice 
And I felt like, and this is probably way overstating things, but had such com- comfortable conversations that I felt like I could have said, like, and hey, after this, do you want to go grab a cup of coffee? And I think they would have said yes. And there were other guys that I got screamed at. I got, um, I don't know if you remember the outfielder, Jose Guillen, but he yes. exploded at me one time and, and accused me of, of saying something racist, which far, far, far from anything I, w- I would ever say. It was, it was um, it, it's not worth telling. But I thought that my career was going to go up in a ball of flames right there, you know, writer involved in, in right. just because this guy exploded at me out of nowhere for no reason. I wasn't even talking to him. Um, and then he got left off the 2010 Giants postseason <laughs> roster, so that was karma. He was not a great player, but I think he thought he was a great player. Um, Ortiz is, is to, to actually answer your question, Ortiz is a difficult player. If you want to talk about him as, uh, you know, whether he should be in the Hall of Fame, whether he's an all-time player, statistically in a lot of ways he's not because the bar for guys who are first baseman is very high. Uh, you know, you have your Gehrigs and your Jimmy Foxes and, and uh, your your prime years, Albert Pujols and Boop those guys Powell. there. But, excuse Boop me, Powell. Boop Powell. Powell was very good for yeah. a while. You have a lot of guys who had three or four great years. And yeah. some of them sneak in because was, I mean, Orlando Cepeda is in. Right. Will, mm-hmm. Clark, Will Clark was one and done. Right. And, he, and Will mm-hmm. Clark, yeah, Will Clark is, is an underrated player. Yeah, yeah. And especially compared right? to the Giants, Rangers, Orioles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, was, he was tremendous. He just wasn't consistent at his... Best level. He also he also started aging. If you track their careers from eighty six to ninety three, Will Clark is a clearly better player than Rafael Palmeira. Absolutely. They go in different directions, and they start going in that different directions for different chemical reasons. Well, and 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 when Will Clark did not take steroids, I think he had a normal downside to his career. Maybe accelerated more than some, but. At a moment when the game was changing, his kind of player was, wasn't as standing out the way they were. You know, and then he ended up, but he ended up still posting decent years most of those years. Right. They're just not the gaudy numbers. Then he had right. a great end of the year 2000. Anyway. I'm agnostic about the PEDs, so we'll... <laughs> well no, but I, 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 I am kind of too, but that's, right. I'm not making value judgment about Palmero. But I think right. it's... Well, there, I mean, guys also age at different rates for sure. whatever reason. Sure. And there are, are players who... They just have that early peak and they decline quickly for whatever right. whatever reason. And it's hard to know... Um, and just to, to quickly dispense with that, I, possibly PEDs had something to do with Palmero. And the, the thing is, though, that we've seen so many other players not benefit from them in right. any particular way that it, it's hard to make a blanket statement about what benefit... I, I agree. I think, I think it's, also, it's also impossible to do the... to actually answer the question. Because when you... I mean, you know, this was... You know, this guy took steroids and he still couldn't hit, Right. Right. I mean, sure, but maybe he really couldn't hit, and now he could just kind of not hit. He just gets hard to I don't. Prove. I don't think that even happens. I don't... I, Who knows? You know, it's, again, right, it's hard to tell, and it's hard to say what a particular substance does in terms right. of, uh, you know, influencing all these mechanics that go into hitting, which is about eye-hand coordination and bat speed and pitch recognition, and a lot of things that Popeye's can of spinach doesn't... Don't, right. You know, that doesn't necessarily apply. This, these are things that might make you stronger or bounce back more, and for what it's worth, I think this is a ten- I don't like too much of the steroids, but but, <laughs> right. but for most of the time that I don't know, Willie Mays was playing center field for the Giants in San Francisco, and Sandy Koufax was pitching, you know, for the Dodgers, just to pick two great players of that early era. Acupuncture was illegal in the state of California, right? It was illegal. It was then. illegal in the state of wow. California, and the reason for that has to do. I mean, this is a little bit off topic, but just right. bear with me for the reasons yeah. is racist laws passed in the late nineteenth century against oh, the Chinese, oh, right? Think right. of the politics of California. There was this. Um, 
crazy hippie governor who no one ever heard of since named Jerry Brown who, who made it legal, right? And, and, and the reason I say that is, that is that it's a gray area, right? What is, I mean, you know, when, when if, if you break, if I break my leg coming out of this building, I'm going to sue the city. No, no. I mean, if I break my leg coming out of this building, you know, I go to physical therapy, this and that. If I'm a baseball player, I get such a different course of, of therapy, medicine, you know, that it's all, it's all. Right. Smart and I, I mean, anyway, also those guys had cups of coffee that were spiked with, oh, with sure, speed at that sure. time. You get it by the, well, yes. You know. So, I mean, and that's, again, maybe that helps you hit more. Maybe it just helps you get up for the grind of the, the day in and day out. So, as you said, with acupuncture, or any treatment that you might get, if we set up a scale that begins with aspirin or a Band-Aid, right, that's an acceptable treatment for if you pull your ha- hamstring, you can have an aspirin. Then it goes all the way to, can you have gene therapy for that? Or can you take some... You can obviously take certain steroids uh, in terms of, of having an injection in a limb that's stiffened up or, or a joint that's stiffened up, I mean to say. So these are kind of arbitrary distinctions that we make, and the performance-enhancing quality of some of these things is not so well so well understood as, as we like to pretend. This does relate to David Ortiz because Ortiz, uh, his name was reportedly on this steroid survey test that was supposed to be anonymous, was not supposed to uh, implicate any particular players, but the list was leaked. It should not have been leaked. They say that he was on it. Uh, there are some people who are purists, pur- Puritans when it comes to uh, this this PED issue, though, as I said, this is uh, again these relationships with drugs and performances are not very well understood. Uh, he has had many great years since then. I believe that was two thousand and three. We're now in two thousand and sixteen. Thirteen years later, and he's having the greatest farewell season of anybody in all time. It's very strange to see, like, well, he just passed Shoeless Joe Jackson for the greatest number of RBIs in a farewell right, season. Right. Well, that, at least it's Ortiz's choice. It wasn't Shoeless Joe's choice. Uh, you know, Shoeless <laughs> Joe went out mid-career. Ditto Happy Felch. Where, where, where else do you hear about Happy Felch? Right, right. Uh, the, you know, the most home runs or, the, or, or what have you. Ted Williams had a pretty good farewell Ted, year. Ted Williams had a very good... And Mickey uh, Mantle had a very underrated farewell year. Well, because... It, right. And this is the same reason that... Data. Right, Boog Powell isn't as appreciated, right. and it's because the stats were so suppressed because it's a pitching-heavy era that, yeah, you can't tell that right. Mickey Mantle was still one of the best players right. in the it's game. Frankly, the same, the same reason Willie Mays' stats weren't that good, Right, right, which is a hard thing to conceive of. Right, and then he was also in the, wrong, the, stick. the wrong park once he left the polo grounds, right. so being, being candlestick. So um, to, to not uh, make this any longer than, than, than it probably <laughs> is, <laughs> is already, it's, topic. It's, it's, it's a complicated question because the further we get away from David Ortiz and direct memories of David Ortiz, and this is true of all players, we start judging them on the back of the baseball card. And the back of the baseball card, as, a, as somebody who's, who's ostensibly a first baseman or a designated hitter, it's very good. It's not necessarily great, given that a lot of it is in an, an inflated offensive era. However, if you treat the Hall of Fame as not necessarily the Hall of Immaculate Quality or the Hall of Guys Who comp- Compiled the Most Perfect Statistics, but literally as a Hall of Renown, right. as a Hall of Fame, then this is a guy who galvanized a franchise, helped end a long... Helped uh, three World Series. Right, three World Series, that, you know, and they haven't won anything since 1918, and um, I think that the marathon bombing and his reaction to it was also a very key moment that made him a transcendent figure, if not nationally, certainly in Boston, and I think all those things matter. I, mean, I, I think maybe the Yankee fans listening, and I suspect we have a few, aren't going to think of betraying them when I say this, but I think David Ortiz was a great player, 
and and I think he should be in the Hall of Fame. For what right. one is it is the Hall of Fame, right? So so Catfish Hunter, right, was not. I mean, I, I was always a big fan because I loved those A's teams as a kid too. And then, but Catfish Hunter was not one of the best pitchers of his generation. And for a while, he was in and Burt Blyle. There's no right was out of the outside looking in. But Catfish Hunter was. I mean, Bob Dylan wrote a song about Catfish <laughs> Hunter. That should get you into the Hall of Fame. Right. But but what strikes me about Ortiz, I think the numbers are, are pretty. You know, you're right because when you look at the era, but. What I'm curious about with Ortiz, because I think he will go in, regardless of, you know, I don't have a vote. I don't know if you have a vote. Um, but, you know, I, I think he will end up getting in, you know, the first couple of years of eligibility. Yeah. Does that change how we talk about some of these other players? Uh, who, who, in my view, again, I don't have a vote, but in my view, people like Roger Clemens, people like Barry Bonds. In, uh, I, I think, I, I am appalled that there's going to be Hall of Fame with Bud Selig in. I think Joe Sheehan pointed this out once. And Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens not. Yeah, does it change how we think about those players? Will Does he open the door in some way? And I don't want to say he did steroids or he didn't, because I don't know. Because we don't know. Uh, you know, it's funny, because when you look at what you know Bond said about about in the various court cases he's been in, about how he used it, doesn't sound like he even used them right. right. You know, he's talking about putting things on topically, you know, creams and, and things like that. It's, um, I really doubt that he, he, you know, derived that much benefit from it. But for some people, it's the act. And, again, I use the word uh, Puritans uh, or scolds pointedly because, I mean, look at what happened with Mike Piazza when he got in. There are guys literally writing stories about how many pimples he had on his back. Right. And their sports writers are turning into dermatologists, which they're not qualified well, to be. Well, some are, right? Isn't, isn't uh, Randy Giserly a dermatologist? Well, yes, yes. <laughs> and I, I work with Rand, uh, Randy for a number of years, and, and uh, he's a great baseball writer and, yes, a dermatologist. But, <laughs> but he's, he's the exception. He's the exception. He's not. He's the one who's actually qualified, and I'm sure that he has said that lots of people have back acne, whether or not they're uh, right. taking steroids. It's just something that happens to some people. So you can't necessarily infer by their presence or their absence what somebody's doing. There is no um, telltale rash that, that uh, illumines that. And, and it's... Again, I, I'm very uncomfortable when when um, we start talking about things that are out of our area of knowledge and out of our ex- area of expertise. And and I'm wondering, just to go back to to the, to uh, David Ortiz for a second, right? So you have, if David Ortiz had retired with 460 home runs instead of you know 500 and what 40 something, right? That he's going to have at the end of this season. Right. Not exactly sure, um, and he still has a few more games. But 460 home runs, he would still have the signature moments, right? What he did in the 2013 World Series against the Cardinals was, to me, amazing, right? Yes. He got the huge hits, a couple huge hits in that uh, amazing comeback against the Yankees in 2004, you know, ALCS, and he did the media right, right? And and you compare that to Barry, what's, what's the greatest moment in Barry Bonds' career? Now, Barry Bonds, it was, I mean, I never saw Willie Mays, but right. the greatest ball player I ever saw. Great. Um, and, and there was, if Barry Bonds had never hit a single home run, He'd still have a, had a Hall of Fame career, right? I, I forget um, who said this that he actually had two Hall. Those, no, that was Bill James said about Ricky Henderson. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, there you go. But, it applies and, to Barry Bonds, right, too. sure. You know, yeah. but but Bonds was the one time I met Barry Bonds. He could not have been nicer to me. Right. But I was not the media at the time. I was a kid. Um, but and so was he. But he was not nice to me. Right. And I'm wondering how that like does that is that is at the end of the day is that can you take steroids and be nice and if you take steroids and not nice because. Is that driving this to some extent? You know, you, know, you brought up something that's really uh, important to me, and, and as somebody who writes about uh, baseball and baseball history and unfortunately ends up writing about the Hall of Fame sometimes, uh, which is, is just a season I, I dread at this point, 
Um, and I, I'd be interested to hear Tanya comment on, on this too, because I think it goes into um, not necessarily the, the Balkans per se, but the way that Americans understand how we relate to the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When it comes to big round numbers in baseball, and you brought up whether Ortiz had 460 or 500, would that materially change anything about him? Yeah, it would change by 40 home runs is what it would of change. Course. The difference between 40. A couple but of that's, Right. That's, it's not meaningful. And there's no moment that we can point to where Moses came down from the Sinai with some tablets <laughs> that said 3,000 hits and 500 home runs mm -hmm. and 300 wins. pitching wins. It's so, all arbitrary. So, and so when we go into, say, uh, the election season or really all the time when people talk about mm -hmm how we're supposed to um, twist different foreign countries to our will to do things, you know, to, to, to uh, comply with, with some idea of American policy, whether mm -hmm. it's the Chinese, whether uh, it's the, the, the Russians or in Syria. It's, it's such a facile understanding of things usually without any nuance. And what those big numbers are really designed to do, and I don't care what your system is, and it can be simply looking at the back of the baseball card, it can be draws, it can be whatever, it's designed to eliminate the critical thinking from the process. Right. So you can look at it and say, oh, 500 home runs, he's in. I don't have to do any further evaluation. 499, he's not. Why is Tommy John's 287 wins not enough, or, or I think 287, 287 or 289? Why, why is it not good enough to, to get him in? I'm not, again, I'm not saying he, sh right. he shouldn't be in, but literally the difference is 11. Who cares? So you guys, you know, are, are, you know, you're down in the stats and everything else. But when I think about big sluggers, I think about Kirk Gibson, Detroit Tigers. I think about Cecil Fielder, and you know, I I went to school in Michigan, and so I would go down to Detroit and and go to the Tigers game and became a huge Tigers fan because I grew up in Indianapolis. I didn't have a natural team to back. So it was either the Cubbies or the Cardinals or the yeah, Reds. The Expos had their farm team there. That yeah, year. yeah, but well, the you Indianapolis know, Clowns, Henry Aaron played. Yeah, <laughs> but but in terms of the major leagues, so so when I was in in school at Central Michigan, we would go down to Detroit, and that was thrilling. That was that was the great years of Detroit Tiger baseball. The kind of Trammell Whitaker years. Trammell, yeah, right. Sweet Lou and. And great My ball wife players, that era in and managed by Sparky, also. and managed by Sparky Anderson, and those were, those were exciting. It was exciting. Kirk Gibson, you know, it was it was a it was a great team, and I'll never forget it. And, and having the thrill of seeing them. And I think this is a very interesting point because, in every city that you go to, right? If you go to Detroit, if you go back to Detroit and talk to hardcore Tiger right. fans your age. They're going to tell you it's appalling that Lou Whitaker and Alan Tremel are in the Hall of Fame. And I agree. Right. With and they're probably right. They are. <laughs> they're probably right. And they could turn it. And, they could really. Oh, and turn they could do everything. It. They you know. could do right. everything. And, they were incredible. And if you go to San Francisco, my friends will, you know, Will Clark, absolutely. And so every city has right. these stories that they tell about the guy who got screwed from their team, right? right. And you can just go around the league and and, yeah. and pick that. And that's you know, and 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 I think the Hall of Fame is important because, you know. Those are the we we don't Boo Powell is all other than I guess he has a barbecue place. I've never <laughs> right, been right, there right. in Baltimore, but he's, he's, you know the, you know we're gonna we're gonna remember Ryan Sandberg fifty years from now. Now to the extent any of this is really important, right, right. more than Lou Whitaker, right? It's not obvious to me that Ryan Sandberg was a better player. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I guess I could be open to being convinced that, but my first cut is not obvious at all. Mm -hmm. um, so, so so the Hall of Fame helps. And I don't want to get a long discussion on the Hall of Fame, but it helps right. preserve that 
That, I mean, that's why it's important. That's why the stories, because mm-hmm. you can't tell the story of baseball in the 21st century without David Ortiz, in my view. No, I agree you know? with you. I and agree. that's, and, and, you know, he played his last game, and, and I think, like I said, I don't think anyone's too upset about that in the Yankees, here in the, you know, in the Bronx or anything. <laughs> the, yeah, speaking of Alan Trammell, he did some serious damage against the Yankees in, in those years. He mm. was a guy you did not want to see up late. And, and uh, in every city, you're right, they do have a favorite son. Here it's probably Don Mattingly, yes, who, uh, mm-hmm. who you no. know, didn't get into the hall. And I hope Don Mattingly wins a, a World Series as a manager somewhere so he can go in as sort of a Joe Torre. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Joe Torre did enough mm-hmm. as a manager to get in purely on that basis. But between that and a playing career that was just short in the judgment of the writers, you put the accomplishments together. And, and on, under the same rubric that, say, Red Shandings got in, you yeah. just say, like, general contributions. Good guy were, kind of thing. Good guy. Like, right. <laughs> excuse me, great uh, career. I mean, and, and Torre, in fairness, his first five, ten years as a manager was thought of as a joke also. So maybe that yeah. does work out for Mattingly down the road. Right, know? exactly. Like, if, if he's given the same number of opportunities. Torrey got a lot of chances. Uh, yeah, and, and Mattingly might, because people like him. And Another right. Indiana guy. Right, right. Yeah, <laughs> right. and he's, he's, you know, again, is uh, somebody uh, that I've talked to, uh, that uh, people in the business have talked to, I think it's true. He is a genuinely decent person. Um, and he had a back injury that sidetracked his career. It was Right, no, the back it was a horrendous thing, and... and um, you know, as somebody, he was a really unique player. I know we're going all over the place right. here, but um, I maybe again it was my age, and everybody says that that uh, the best baseball is the baseball when you were twelve or thirteen right. or mm-hmm. that kind of thing. But when I, you know, I was a, a teenager when he was at his peak. I was and too. And he did things. He had such exquisite back control, and I loved watching him because he could look at a pitch a half second longer than everybody else and say, you know, maybe that one was too close to take. And he would just flick out the bat head and hit it out of the catcher's mitt, and he could knock as many foul balls as he wanted to and just go, bing, and he'd still be at bat, where somebody else would have taken a called strike three. And then that next pitch, he'd get one to drive, and he, he would do something great. He never struck out, or very rarely right. struck out. For a out. player with that kind of power, when he was healthy. Right, and of course he sacrificed his, his spine to generate that kind of power out of a relatively small body uh, to, to pull the ball the way the way that he did. And it was so, um, and I would feel this way today too, even you know when, when I'm, I'm, I'm disclaiming my fandom, but I think if, if it were uh, a Mike Trout who got hurt this way, I would feel a loss that he wasn't performing at the same level. Yes. And so every day I thought, maybe today is the day Mattingly will go three for four and he'll be back. Yes, I remember thinking that when I moved back here in the early 90s, that is this the, you know, because he... And he and Will Clark were kind of in this parallel universe together because they both had these careers that never quite came together after right. the first few years. Um, to get back to a totally different topic, um, but I do want to talk to Tanya about this. I think this is really interesting. Um, you are writing a book and continue to do a lot of work on LGBT yes. movements in the Balkans. So um, I, I want to talk a little bit about, about your work there, but also, mm-hmm. and again, it's a different topic, but um, the how has... Kind of how has this the LGBT civil rights movement become globalized? This is, this is you know a, a major international civil rights movement that is you know has challenges and setbacks, but also accomplishments in all over the world that that is significant. So maybe we could chat about that. Well, I a think bit. it's I think it's really profound. I I mean it it is global, and there probably isn't a country anywhere in the world that doesn't have gay people who are attempting to come out. Uh, and I'm a specialist in Eur- Eurasia, uh, and obviously I pick up a lot on Europe. Uh, 
don't follow Latin America as closely, but Brazil really was the leader at the UN uh, to bring forward this issue before the Security Council, and they would do it in human rights, uh, the Human Rights Committee. They were a leader way before the United States was. And as a matter of fact, uh, former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton was playing catch-up. She ran for office. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whatever and, happened. And, and Democratic Party nominee. She, she was playing catch-up to the world on the issue of LGBT human rights when she you know, brought that forward in, in uh, 2010, 2011 rather, and, uh, and gave a speech in Geneva that, you know, was riveting for people, especially people from the Balkans and Eastern Europe, that this, this U.S. Secretary of State gave a speech on Human Rights Day, International Human Rights Day, saying the United States was joining the rest of the world community to say once and for all LGBT people and their rights were human rights too. Um, that was profound. And not to be underestimated, although a lot of people in the United States, uh, even those people who are engaged in LGBT human rights, a lot of people did not know the extent of what she did. And it was pretty amazing, uh, besides the fact that it called in terms of monitoring and documenting uh, all these human rights abuses and would call and re require U.S. Uh, consultations with the host country on, on these issues and record it in, in the annual human rights report. But then, not only did she do that, she wasn't satisfied with just that, asking the, you know, the State Department to do their job, but she worked with the National Security Council in the White House and set up an apparatus that went across the government, compelling the government to respond if there were threats to life and activate certain agencies and also uh, work in tandem with several agencies of the government that, that President Obama supported. So it's really, really remarkable what she did. And we would like to see her do it as president for for the you know the LGBT community in the United States. But uh, more to the point, with regard to the Balkans, um, you see, just as you see anywhere in the United States or Western Europe, is that it's one step forward, two steps back, and I was just in Belgrade for Pride. It was the third Pride held consecutively with incredible security, but more people attending and participating, maybe about 1,500 people. And the government sees that it's in their interest to make this happen, and the prime minister controls the right wing, and so he can keep the skinheads off the street on that day. But simultaneous to that was an organization from Rockford, Illinois there, calling for normal families and a whole weekend agenda discussing how they can protect and maintain normal, healthy uh, families that, you know, a marriage is between one man and one woman. And that continues to animate uh, many of these situations, from Uganda to Serbia, uh, where you see these right-wing organizations from the United States going to Russia, going to Georgia, going to Ukraine, you know, basically proselytizing against uh, LGBT human rights. Uh, Albania is probably one of the biggest success stories. 
They're very close to the United States. They want to do what the United States wants them to do, urges them to do. Um, Prime Minister, uh, Prime Minister uh, Barisha is like, you know, he's rather Eddie Rama has been really, really pro-gay. It's pretty amazing. So, so what happens? I mean, we. I mean, I've. I have to say, I, I've worked enough countries on, on kind of foreign sure. policy stuff sure. that, that you saw this when Clinton, the Clinton-Obama team came in. Yes. That suddenly these LGBT issues were considered, they were part of the human rights package that the United States talked about in That's countries. Right. Yeah. And it was tangible. I mean, it was really very noticeable. Yeah. And even in the small things, even even in the less, you know, not, funding, organi- funding groups, the civil rights groups in, in yeah. particular countries, but just the way LGBT issues were the assumption that we're going to treat people equally. That's right. Um, in, in the embassy, you know, that you can come in and talk to us, which was not always, had not always been the case yeah. before that. She started a public-private partnership called the Global Equality Fund so she could go around Congress so they couldn't strip the money, and so there was money but, raised so to fund to fund these organizations or give them offices and help them do work, help them exist. So can I ask uh, both of you, in terms of the, the timeline of the administration's evolution on this mm-hmm. uh, you know the, there there were pledges from Obama when he ran that he was slow to recognize uh, come out and recognize gay rights it, it was right. perceived that Joe Biden kind of dragged him into doing that on by marriage ju- on marriage on marriage but so where where was Hillary ahead of Obama on this or, or well she clearly got his sign off on it but but according to my sources and people that I've talked to, including Dan Baer, who's the U.S. ambassador of the OSCE, an openly gay man who was deputy assistant secretary in the DRL at State. Uh, she wanted to do it. She asked to do it. When she walked in the door in, in uh, January 2009, the first thing she did was she assessed all personnel policies, and she made did everything she could within the law to permit gay relationships between... Uh, foreign service officers and their partners, they were recognized. She enabled people to travel together to posts. Um, the, whole, the whole review on anything that could be done, including the issuing of passports to transgender persons without a gender marker document requirement that would be presented. In other words, People that are that transition or in the in the process of transitioning to their desired gender, they usually cannot get an official government document without that gender marker change on their birth certificate right. or some other ID. And she said, "No, you don't have to do that. You just need to give us a a letter from your physician saying you're being treated and you're going through the process." That was life-saving for many transgender people because they couldn't work, and if they couldn't work, they would be homeless. It is, it is un, inestimable how much that meant uh, to people's everyday lives that they could get a passport. It, it must make you want to scream then, and it makes me want to scream. Hearing that, it made me want to scream earlier this week, uh, you know, when you, you hear the, then the debates and Trump is, you know, shouting at her, what have you ever accomplished? I think she's accomplished quite a bit, mm-hmm. and this is something I think that goes under the radar for most Americans, but this is, is something 
very proactive, actually. And, and it's, and it's all, what, what I was going to also ask is, sure. is, that, is that what, what, what troubles me is that, is that we are one election away, not just, not just you can talk about Donald Trump, but, but whether it was Ted Cruz or whomever, right? Nobody on the Republican side ran for president saying, I'm going to keep doing what Hillary Clinton did to the State Department. I'm going to keep making LGBT rights. No one ran on that platform on the I, Republican Party. So, so we're, we're, how do we institutionalize this so we're not at the mercy of the next president coming and undermining this if it's not well, the Well, I mean, now that you have the DOMA decision that struck down you know, the prohibition, you actually have a, a status decision but, saying but, but it's but unconstitutional. It's unconstitutional. Well, in terms of international... Uh, what you have in Europe, including in the Balkans, is that you have good laws. You don't necessarily have good implementation. You have rare implementation. But you also have an EU Court of Human Rights that's issued many decisions that affirm LGBT human rights. Um, they're doing what they're supposed to do. They're checking the boxes off. I think that what's happening is that uh, people are coming out, and they're standing up, and uh, there's a new organization being uh, formed that I asked to be an advisor to called the LGBTI Equal Rights Association, where they're bringing together all the LGBT organizations from South Southeastern Europe, including Turkey, and they've been negotiating uh, agreements and partnerships with respective ministries of justice to implement and push forward these laws, and it's very smart lobbying and advocacy planning by these organizations and form a regional block that can actually make a lot of noise and keep visibility. And I, and I think that maintain visibility, but so you have different degrees of advancement, and poor Bosnia and Herzegovina hasn't had a pride yet and is working very slowly because it's really compounded by the Dayton process, which is basically ossified. So lots of things don't move forward, including LGBTI rights in Bosnia. But Montenegro became uh, entered into the NATO process, and they had a pride. And so that's very interesting because all these things have to, you have to adopt democratic practices. And norms. And, and as norms. Well as practices, and that's rule law. Too. And so that happened in, that happened in um, Montenegro last year. That's an example. Uh, Albania has been having pride events for a, a number of years. Serbia now has three years under their belts. Macedonia is a disaster. It's been in bad shape. The government is teetering on collapse. Uh, one gay activist in Tetovo, uh, Tetovo, who I've been worked with, had to leave, had to be expedited out of the country last year because he'd been beaten up and harassed so much for being visible at Amsterdam Pride and I actually helped get him out of the country. So, you know, you're looking at the situation now. Croatia uh, banned same-sex marriage constitutionally in its first referendum after joining the EU, but yet the, the progressive government, which was an SDP government at that time, passed a civil uh, partnership law immediately, which I've never seen happen, which is pretty remarkable. But now you have a really right-wing government in Zagreb, uh, and you're surrounded by right-wing governments. Most likely Austria is going to, to elect a right-wing government. Hungary is headed by Orban, who's an autocrat despot. 
and, and, and in many countries... So, there, so the, the, the neighborhood's not very friendly. You have the rise of Russia, and we know what Russia has done on LGBT rights. And Russia has defined Europe as they're going to make your son marry another man, right? That is how Russia has... That, yes, that's the, we have to protect our children. Right. We have to protect our children from them. And has defined Europe that way yeah. to to their constituencies within those countries who tend to skew that's, older and more conservative anyway. That's right. So, so you know, you have just a different states of evolution here uh, in the Balkans, but without a doubt it's happening. And even though in Bosnia, where it's really a difficult situation, outside of Sarajevo, you now have groups organizing, including in Banja Luka, Tuzla, and Mostar, which I see as considerable progress. But, but back to Hillary Clinton for just one second. <clears throat> and that is, um, she had, had done a lot. She did a lot with respect to this issue. And she had um, done a lot on women and girls across the State Department. I think her accomplishments are dismissed because these are seen as soft issues, not important. (coughs) And um, because of that, you know, what she's done in terms of these achievements throughout the State Department and in her, uh, in her leadership role, I think reestablishing alliances and, and reassuring friends was no small undertaking in, in the aftermath of George W. Bush. So I think there's been a, just a general dismissal of what she actually accomplished. And <clears throat> I don't think that she's done as good a job as she could have talking about what she did accomplish. I mean, you know, I understand how that goes. You got to balance. You have to balance it off against other things. But, but I think the campaign did get to it, but got to it too. You know, much later than they should have. In my view. I, I think, in my view. I, I think just there's a there's a. It's, and even someone like Hillary Clinton who starts out, you know for better or for worse, with almost universal name recognition when she begins right. this campaign and all of that. When you run in, you know, she is now four years removed from being Secretary of State. Right. Right? So any, so it is, it is, you have to remind people of things. It's just, it's just not on people's minds. Right. Um, so, I'm going to change topics. I want to go back to baseball. This is kind of an odd, I mean, this is the nature of this <laughs> podcast, but, but uh, I think when it works, it works. So, so because we're talking about events from the 90s and, yeah. and you know, the kind of historical context, I was noticing, I have two sons who are not, not by my standards baseball fans, but by the standards of contemporary young American baseball fans. <laughs> That's <laughs> a depressing thought. Okay. Right. And my, my younger son is actually taken to, he will yell out from his room, you know, whether or not the, he's a Giants fan, whether or not the Giants won, or, you know, when this tragic event with Jose Fernandez, he was, you know, told me that. But one thing that strikes me is that they consume baseball information very differently. When I was growing up, my brother and I would read the box scores. Right. We would take the newspaper, unfold it, and it was it was quantitative and it was it was literary. And I'm not I mean, I think these are these are there's no difference. It's just the way the world works. Now it's the highlights, right? Even I in the morning I get up and I watch the highlights of on, on the MLB recap of the game that seemed the most like the Giants, Dodgers, whatever games I'm interested in from the night before. Right. 
so it's it's consumed different. There's also more of it, right? You can so, so I'm wondering. You've been covering baseball, and writing about baseball for a long time. About twenty years now. Yeah, I mean, how does how does that how does this change affect you as you write and think about how you write about baseball? It goes so much faster, and the internet has uh, brought down the barriers to entry for writers so much that. And, and I've benefited from this, too. The vast majority of my career has been online. I've been in newspapers. I've been in magazines. But, but you've books also. Yeah, and books. Um, but, but my day-to-day you know, uh, existence is really due to, to being online. So I've benefited from it, too. But what happens is that the news cycle is faster. There are a lot more voices jumping in. Um, I think that, that uh, you know, Twitter has, has allowed news to be pre-digested such that um, you don't need a big, long take because you get a take when something happens, excuse me, 140 characters or so, and you may or may not read the 1,500-word story that comes after because, you you know, whether it's so-and-so hits three home runs or so-and-so broke their arm or, or whatever. That, that, that typical game story. Right. You've just got it. You've got it in a, in a pill form. You know, you just swallow it real fast. You don't have to work at it. So I think that... Um, it's a challenge to those of us who write, and I've maybe, to be um, perhaps over, overly confessional for this podcast, I've made a decision in my career, which possibly has been injurious to my career, which is to not focus on that stuff, not tell you the things that you already have gotten, and try to tell stories, and try to talk about human interaction, rather than break down these games along these Bill James sabermetric lines, which everyone now comes equipped with. And or a lot of people, they're they're still the old school like RBIs are the most important thing and batting average is the most important thing. But that's not the the language in which the conversation is conducted online. And it's it's interesting. I mean, when I started with Baseball Prospectus, going back at the be- the beginning of the century at this point, I guess we can say that now. Like, I mean, that that war was still being fought, and you were still arguing yes. with people about about pitcher wins, and and there are people who. Who are still doing that? Brian Kenny just had a book out about still arguing about kill the pitcher when it's dead, it's dead. I mean, you know, Felix Hernandez won the the Cy Young with whatever. Tim Lincecum, two thousand eight, nine, right. right? Yeah, it's it's over. Um, the hundred and fifty pitch game is over. Where you know that used to be something we had to argue about. Now it's now it's it's so much more complex than that. So uh, it's changed a lot. And you're right. We used to have to work really hard to actually just get the basic information. And I used to, to uh, I had the pleasure of, of, of uh, I don't know if you remember him from being on WFAN years ago, but Jody McDonald, who's still around, does a lot of broadcasting. He's on Sirius XM sometimes. He used to, to um, do overnights on WFAN sometimes, and he would read the box scores on the radio. This is before you could easily get online and right. just have the box score. Especially back here on the East Coast. We're right. recording in New York where... I remember coming here in the summers to visit my grandparents, and I couldn't get the Giants score. Right, you couldn't get it. You can because that, that game starts at ten right. o'clock at night here, and it might end at one in the morning. And Monday the papers, night game get a Wednesday's, Wednesday's paper. Right, exactly. You couldn't find out, so he would read it, and he would be sitting there to, to invoke Will Clark, who, who's come up a few times. Will Clark, three for four. Jeffrey uh, Leonard. Yeah, you know Bob Brenly, zero oh for five, right. two two errors. You know that that kind of four thing. errors, four day. errors. <laughs> so. You had to really scratch for it, and what you got on Sundays, you'll remember, is this big, long column in the sports section said batting average, home runs, RBIs, only had qualifiers, so if there was a guy who, you know, if they, 200 at-bats was the qualification. Gary Sanchez or somebody. Right. Yeah, Gary Sanchez wouldn't be listed right now. Right. 
he would he he just would be invisible for all purposes. But but I'm wondering here. I, I was the, when the Yankees, the last Yankee Red Sox series, the one where they were in Boston. A right. cousin of mine who was a big Red Sox fan tweeted out something, and he's a big baseball fan, big Red Sox fan. Tweeted out, I don't even recognize half the guys on this Yankee team, right? And you know he wasn't saying it in a kind of a gloating Red Sox way. He was just stating a fact. Right. And he said, you know, I think Sabathia wasn't pitching, so someone like Mitchell was pitching. You know, and it was like. I think he said, I know Jacoby Ellsbury, and you know, like, we wonder if Gary Sanchez has been in the news. Right. But to me, that's also because the way, the way we consume the information now, we go so deep, right? When I was a kid, if you knew the name of three prospects in your team system, right? Right. That was a big deal, but you could probably, the same level, the, that fan who knows 10 prospects a day would know every catcher in the big leagues. I have, uh, um, there was a series of books in the 70s and 80s, season preview books by... Uh, I think the guy, his name was Xander Hollander. I have some um, of those. These, these white paperbacks that came out every year. I have some of those. Yeah. And he would have, similar to what we did in the Baseball Prospectus books, not as deep, but he'd have a couple of sentences for, for each guy. Um, and then he would list a, co- a couple, two prospects, right, three yeah. prospects. And they weren't even necessarily the best prospects. They were just guys who, you know, he looked at, he looked at it and said, well, who hit 330? Right, someone had a bunch of home runs. Someone had a bunch of home runs. And maybe it was a guy who was 28 and at double A and he overpowered the league or something. He wasn't a real prospect. So it's changed. And now, and I enjoy the prospect stuff, I think, as much as anybody, but I'm not obsessive about it. I have as part of my job, I have to be conversant in that. But there are a lot of people who like the coming attractions better than they like the movie. Well, and also, but but I think that the, like, like in our political dialogue, right? I mean, the right. reason... One of the reasons that Donald Trump can just kind of make stuff up, right, as he goes, I mean, I think that's a generous way to describe what he's doing. Yes. But but one of the reasons he just, there's, and we have this whole discussion about the debate about, not we, but in the media about fact-checking, is that there are no, I mean, I mean, what used to be, we would all get, you know, the way the media has changed, the people who are, who Donald Trump, his base, the, the reality they're getting is so different than the reality the other 60% of America is getting. And, and it, you know, this isn't as, as, in some sense, this isn't as, as divisive as, as they say, Trump versus Hillary Clinton. But it, it seems that you used to, you know, the information that was most easily out there was a little bit about everything, right, in terms of baseball, a little right. bit about every team. Now, you know, what, when, I'm, when I talk to a fan of a team and they tell me, you know, these three, four prospects are, you know, they were ranked by the top Ten in you know, baseball. Well, look, every team has a top ten. That's right. the definition of a top ten, right? Right. But go read the top hundred for all of MLB, and if you got no one in the top fifty, you may not have as good a farm system as you te- you so, think your team does. So just like everything, the internet has given baseball a lot more information readily available to to absolutely to Huge everybody amounts. to everybody anybody who wants to consume right. it. Right. Both to consume or produce it. Or produce it. So you right. can just produce a podcast about baseball without having to have you know. Right, and I, I do want to say. In terms of what you pointed out, in terms of these, uh, the the, the uh, epistemological closure that that people go through, in terms of getting, you know, one person may get their their political facts from Daily Coast because they're on the left side, and another person might get it from Breitbart because they're on the right side, and they may tell the same <clears throat> the same uh, story, but come out with vastly different conclusions, including who won or who lost a debate, or who's leading or who's uh, losing a poll or 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 any event really. And one thing that I find fascinating about that and about um, the mainstream media, which is only just now waking up to uh, policing what are blatant lies because they, they felt somehow that would be too partisan to just call a thing what it is. Right. 
I, as a sports writer, I don't have that luxury. If I'm writing about the Yankees, either they won or they lost last night. Right. I right. can't say, well, no, they really won. It was a Pyrrhic victory. You know, it was, right. it was it, sure, the Red Sox won, but it was a Pyrrhic victory because, right. you know, these ten things happen. It, either a guy's doing well or he's not doing well. You can't write the only reason so, the Red Sox... So I would venture and say to you that sports writers are much more credible than political <laughs> reporters. Except when they're talking about acne. Okay, so yeah, except yeah, except being juiced in acne, right. right. But I, I would say this, I think the biggest failure of this election cycle is that of the mainstream media. It is a gigantic failure in that they have lost their credibility. There's a phenomenon now called uh, what you would call... Uh, Sleuth editing, in other words, they're editing after they yes. they they uh, publish, and they don't post any editor's notes. The New York Times has been egregious in this capacity, as well as in changing, leaving up headlines right. that are inaccurate. Yes. There's, there's... This this is the whole industry has been changed by. The internet, obviously, and the technology and the business model, which is to drive as many unique clicks yes. to your content. But but it, it's it's also I think there is a with regard to the election. It's different with baseball, but with regard to the election, there is this. I mean, if you go back to that, I thought it was not a good forum, but the commander in chief forum uh, for the two I was presidential candidates. You know, I attended yeah. um, <laughs> for the two presidential candidates. But but you know, I I I don't know what was going on in Matt Lauer's head, but from the outside. <laughs> It seemed that what he didn't want to do was embarrass the candidates. Now, you might, I don't, and, and, and that's fine, I guess, but, uh, but, but if, then, if you then take that to mean, I don't want to embarrass Donald Trump by asking him a question he can't answer, which then means you can't ask questions about substance, right? Right, you can't ask anything. That's, that, to me, is, 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 comes out of this, this normal journalistic impulse, which is we want, to, we want to give the candidates a chance to speak, and they're not... They're not prepared. Technology aside, they're not prepared for this guy. I completely agree. And that agree. has that raises a lot of. I mean, the the Huffington Post. If you read their when they have an article about Trump, they put a disclaimer about it. I love that <laughs> and it's disclaimer. great because it just lays it out. Like you need to know this before you read this or after you read this, this article. This disclaimer. Or Donald is, Trump is, is a misogynist, is, hateful, yeah, you know, authoritarian. Yeah, whatever yeah. it says. Known to you know to uh, little everybody. Yeah, you know. yeah, right. So I I think that that Lauer should be ashamed. I'm sure, maybe perhaps it's he a is. black mark. I think it's a black mark against him and against NBC. His performance was was just absolutely abysmal. So, so I want to kind of briefly just stay on this. Then when I then we have asked you, give an opportunity to talk to each other for a second, uh, ask each other questions. That's I always a fun questions. part. But I have some but, but here's here's just a it's been briefly on this. Let's say that you know if we look at the polling data now, right, and it is mm -hmm. the last day of September. The polling data to me, especially if we break down some of the states, suggests that on uh, November 8th, Hillary Clinton will get roughly between 300 and 340 electoral votes. I'm not making any predictions. I'm not making any promises. I'm mm -hmm. just saying what we look at the, from the polling mm -hmm. data. Mm -hmm. And we will elect, she'll become the president. And, and we will elect somebody who is, you know, very much in terms of qualifications and ideology, very much in the mainstream, you know, left of center on many yeah. issues, but she's not radical. She's, she's not, a conventional and, politician and she's not, in that And she's not, uh, regardless of what some have said, I mean, absurdly, she's obviously very qualified and all of that. How do we unring the bell that is the damage that has done, been done to our polity and our, and our political mm -hmm. community mm -hmm. by this campaign? Uh, not her campaign, but, but 
this campaign. To me, that's and and it's, and it's particularly given a situation where on. I mean, imagine this. So you're, you know, you're wherever you are on election night. We're all wherever yes. we are. We're watching the the computer. You know, we're we're trying to get updated at the clicker to see who's you know you're at a party. They're saying okay, Pennsylvania went this way, and and they put on the screen that I, I, I'm, not, I'm imagining that you could see this happening. Ohio goes for Clinton. And we now know that given what's going to happen in the West Coast, I mean, I think this is a realistic scenario. We yeah. know that she'll win. So they can project her as the president because the polls are closed on the West Coast. Do you see, Donald, there was in that movie about Mitt Romney, there's a moment where Mitt Romney turns to his staff and says, does anyone have the president's number? Because I have to call and concede. And this is a very human moment. He's not happy about it. He lost the election, and he's got to do what we do in America to kind of keep the democracy moving forward. Do you see Donald Trump doing that? I mean, I, I'm not sure. And, and so how do we get from, how do we kind of get back to a functioning political community? I, Give me five I, seconds. No, I'm joking. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to, I'll be profound here. No, I, I think there's uh, quite a bit of doubt about what Donald Trump will do when he loses. And, of course, that is my objective, that he will lose, uh, along with many other people. But let me just say, I think the problem in our polity and the atmosphere that's been created started way before this election and this campaign. And that's what I'm so deeply disturbed and concerned about, that the Republican Party has assiduously worked to delegitimize this president, decided to do that on day one of his presidency, the day he was sworn in, and have effectively said, we're not going to do anything to help you govern this country. And, and we're going to stop you and we're going to thwart your agenda and, we're, and then we're going to stand back and say nothing works. And we're going to ask and, to see his papers. And we're going to ask to right. see your papers, show your papers, uh, and, and we, you know, we will humiliate you. We will do everything we can. And so what's happened is, in, in my view, is antithetical to being a patriot. It's antithetical to being American. When I grew up, despite, despite the fact that I wasn't equal as a young girl and eventually uh, could, to come out and be gay, when you got up in the morning and the president said, we're going to send a man to the moon, you believed it. You believed it. And you joined in that. And so the idea that this governor in New Jersey in Trenton says, I'm not going to accept this 10 billion dollar grant from the federal government to build to build a tunnel to New York because we can't do it uh, is so anti antithetical to what I believe is is what makes us so uniquely American. We identify problems, we address them, we build things, we fix things. And we are we I grew up in a culture that was can do. It was can do. And I don't see it anymore. And I think they've worked their, they've worked in every single capacity to destroy uh, optimism, to destroy the idea that, that America can work again. And I, 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 I don't, I, I understand the political agenda, but... In fact, what they did was they created this opportunity for Donald Trump to come forward and lead their party, and I hope lead their party to destruction on November 8th. That I hope and pray for that destruction because I think that's the only way that we're going to get back 
to something normal. I, I echo and applaud uh, every one of those words. I think, I think you're dead on. And it's fascinating to me that, uh, you know, during the Civil War, we could successfully suppress a rebellion and charter and pay for three transcontinental railroads, in which, by the way, the federal government got all their money back out of that. Um, imagine if they had just said, no, the money's not there. Sorry, we can't do it. Um, it was understood, and, and, you know, the federal government investing in the, in the country has always been a controversial thing going back to, to George Washington, but it was, at many different times, it has been understood that this is something you do, that uh, the, this is what the general welfare, you know, part of the, the Constitution, uh, the preamble to the Constitution mm-hmm. is about that, that you do this. I don't, as Tanya said, there's something bigger going on here, I think, than just Trump and and just the way that he's the the political system has been debauched, and in the the cynicism of the Republican Party and the demagoguery of it is part of that, the fecklessness of the Democratic Party, not willing to be a center left party, uh, is part of that. Uh, I think in some ways that Bill Bill Clinton uh, trying to lead it to the center was very smart. He took away certain issues that the Republicans had been uh, hitting the Democrats over the head with, going back to Franklin Roosevelt, but at the same time, he didn't give them anything else to stand for either. So we have kind of this um, an economic uh, uh, transitional period that we're in where we have greater international trade, we have greater mobility of capital, but neither of these parties looks at, say, workers and says, uh, well, we're going to train you to exist in this this uh, this era where capital has no borders and your factory may up and move to some place, it's not necessarily a crime that the factory ups, ups and moves or that we might sign a treaty, despite what Donald Trump says, that is going to encourage that factory mm-hmm. to move. It's what you do with the people that are left behind. But I think an- another big issue is that instead of, and, and this is very uh, upsetting to me, that instead of ushering in a post-racist United States when Barack Obama was elected, it somehow re-legitimized racism again. Uh, in that, for a long time, for you know, the, the civil rights movement on, that it was better understood that, that looking down on, on whether it's African Americans or other groups that might be considered outgroups by certain segments of the population, <clears throat> excuse me, that was punching down. Well, suddenly a member of one of those groups is president of the United States, and now it's punching up again. I, I think that that the one of the kind of unexpected cultural trade-offs of the Obama presidency was the almost like the unspoken deal that we'll have an African American president, but in Obama's America, it's it's going to be worse to call somebody a racist than to actually be one, right? So you get this this pushback against identifying. I mean, you can turn on CNN. I'm pick on CNN, any network, and there'll be a debate about is Donald Trump a racist? Well, if Donald Trump isn't a racist, what exactly do you have to do to be a racist, right? But calling someone a racist now is because because the, we seem to have you know Obama is a symbol that we've transcended race. No, Obama's a symbol that he got more votes than George John McCain or Mitt Romney. Right. I mean, that's, that's all that's all that happened there. Many people voted against him. Not, not necessarily because he was black. They would have voted against any Democrat, whether it was Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama. But, so, I want to kind of, we've been going on for a long time, but I want to give you a chance 
to talk to each other. Sure. So, Steve, why don't you begin? Do you have any questions for Tanya from her work, anything she said today, anything <laughs> I, you want to know more I about? I do, and, and I hope this isn't too basic, but, uh, again, you know, uh, Americans, uh, I think they spend more time on what's in their backyard than they do in on many other parts of the world, and it's easy to uh, for a lot of us to, to forget that they exist. And during this conversation, one thing that, that shocked me, and I'm embarrassed by this, because uh, it shows how naive and possibly uneducated I am, is when you were you were talking about um, Albania possibly being progressive on on uh, or more progressive than the neighborhood on gay rights. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever heard Albania and progressive. Mm-hmm. Not that you use. I'm using that word, so I may be I may be using it inappropriately. Um, I I don't think I've ever heard Albania referred to that way. You know when when um, uh, you know Randy Newman did a, an album called Good Old Boys about about uh, Southern racist culture in the seventies. And I think his working title for it was the Albanian National Anthem or something because he was, you know, he's, that was the, the next backwater he could think of. Well, what's interesting to me, I call Albania the little country that could. Okay. Because if they can, they will do it. They are incredible. Now, full disclosure, I'm third generation Albanian American. <laughs> My grandmother was born in theory and came to this country in 1928 through Ellis Island. And in my capacity in the Hillary Clinton campaign, I, I do Albanian-American engagement. And what's really fascinating to me, and, and it's also my scholarly region of interest, is that this opening in Albania in the 1990s, five years after Inver Hoxha, the dictator, died, was an incredible thing that unleashed 60 years of oppression. And the entrepreneurs in New York City alone that run many Italian restaurants and most of the pizzerias are Albanians. Wow. Uh, they are hardworking. Uh, they have an entrepreneurial flair. They, uh, they love this country, the, the ones that have come here, and the ones that remain in Albania love America. So, in Macedonia, which is a very split country, right. the Albanian part is very, very close and, if, and has great affinity to the United States, as is the Kosovars, where there's a statue of Bill Clinton, you know, in Kosovo. There's one also... A giant poster of Elliot Engel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and Elliot Engel, who's my member. And a big a Yankee, and a big Yankee and, fan. <laughs> and, and a great supporter of the Albanian-American community. Uh, and in Albania itself, so I mean, the, it, it is it is interesting that that you bring that up, but in fact, it did not have to bear the burden of post conflict. It it threw out a dictator. The dictator died, and they had to overcome that aspect of its polity and its history. And I really refer to it as the North Korea. Uh, that period of the North Korea of Europe, um, but really it doesn't bear all those scars and the and the trauma of having survived war. And good for them, good for them. Uh, but they are working very very hard to to get there and get there as fast as they can. And that includes gay rights. So so more more broadly, what I was going to ask yeah. on on a, on a more basic level is that I I think. Um, most Americans, or if my experience mm-hmm. is typical, you know, my first interaction with uh, the Balkans is, as you brought up earlier, Archduke Ferdinand and yeah. and the assassination in, in Sarajevo. Right. And then 
my next encounter was Sarajevo, also at the Winter Olympics, and and uh, in 1984, and all this talk about how this is this beautiful city, this gem of a city. Mm-hmm. Flash forward ten years, my next encounter with the Balkans is again Sarajevo, mm-hmm. and now it's been decimated, and this beautiful city has been destroyed. So now we're we're over 20 years further on from that, and I was curious if you could just give us a sense of place of of mm-hmm. what has grown there now in the, the period of relative quietude, and not just Sarajevo, but maybe that region in general, um, because I don't know that it's necessarily a very real place for a lot of Americans who think of, of going to Europe and going to, to London or Paris. Right, I mean, a lot of people would say, oh, you're going to, to Sarajevo, be careful, and I laugh, <laughs> I just really laugh. Um, well, you can, you can say a number of things. Yeah, things have been rebuilt, I mean, buildings have been patched up, bridges have been rebuilt. Um, tourism is way up in the, in the Balkans. Obviously, uh, Croatia is beautiful. It's got this coast, the Adriatic coast is un, is just absolutely exquisite. It actually reminds me a great deal of Northern California. The wines are great. The food is great. The hospitality is wonderful. Albania's coastline is also being developed, and it's becoming a big tourist uh, destination. Uh, the fact is is that life does go on. It doesn't necessarily go on well. I mean, you have had... Right now, Serbia is considered the number one country in the world for people leaving it. And I think one of the things that's always a big giveaway is how what's the birth rate? And people stop having babies when they don't believe there's a... There's a good outlook in the future, and the birth rate is dropping. Uh, Serbia, Serbia is, needs money, uh, and the other thing is, you know, like Lincoln was talking earlier about, well, what's different? The thing is to remember always about Serbia, and this goes back in its history, and it's about the, the Albanian question and the Serb question and the serpent is always in the breast of the Serb. And so the West thinks that they go to the Serbs to make the deals and keep keep the region stable, but in fact the risks are of not addressing the root problems, lack of rule of law, uh, corruption, lack of transparency, if those issues are not dealt with, the region actually can end up in in disarray and in into conflict. And so the Balkans have a propensity not to get any attention until there's a real problem. Right. And that's just the way it goes. But there are those of us who, you know, I sort of have this addiction. I will die with it, but it's just my region, and I'm fascinated by it. And, and, and there's one layer after another layer after another layer, and um, I'll never get rid of it, I don't think. Thank you. Uh, Tanya, do you have any questions for Steve? Well, I'm always interested about a couple of things. One is, what do we do about Pete Rose? <laughs> Pete Rose. And you remember, I grew up in Indianapolis, and the guy, I always remember him, in the clubhouse, pictures, video of him in the clubhouse walking over to the phone. Uh, you know, so... That's right. In the dugout, you mean. In the dugout, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry, in the dugout. Walking to the phone, I know you call, you call up the pictures. But, but uh, 
you know, my father was a gambler. And he didn't gamble on baseball. But gambling still has a pretty steep stigma, doesn't it? Even in baseball. It does, or, even even though the, the major sports leagues are all in, in uh, cahoots with these um, daily fantasy sites and um, take advertising from them and, and so forth in terms of people gambling essentially on outcomes of, of individual players every mm-hmm. single day. Uh, you know... Pete Rose was a great player for a number of years. He wasn't a great player for all the years. Mm-hmm. He benefited from being able to write his own name in the lineup uh, at a time where he really didn't have anything left to contribute. There's There was a line that he talked about. One of my favorite players from the 80s was Eric Davis, who was um, a guy who, who um, was treated very badly by the Reds on a number of levels and by Marge Schott, who was a, a literal Nazi sympathizer yes, and, and, and racist. Of diversity. Um, and I mean, he, this is a guy who punctured a spleen in the World Series, and they made him pay his own way back. Um, but when when and they he, won that World Series, and they won that World Series, when he came up in 1984 or 1980, uh, or maybe this was the next year, 1985, Pete Rose was the manager, and he said having Eric Davis on the bench next to you is like having an atomic bomb in the dugout. And I thought, yeah, but the the whole problem is he's in the dugout next to you. He's (laughs) on the bench while Tony Perez, who's 45, and Dave Concepcion, Mm -hmm. who's 45, is out there, and Pete, who's 45. So the fact that he broke uh, Ty Cobb's record for career hits is not such a big thing to me because, again, he had... He had special circumstances. But, but, but the, the Pete Rose, I, I agree with you. Right. I mean, I agree <laughs> with you, but, but the Pete Rose from 1963 to about 1980 was, was a great player. extraordinary ball player. Really good player. And he had, he had a, actually a pretty long peak. He had an even longer yes. decline period, right? Right. But he had that peak, and he also was, I mean, this is a guy, I think he's played over 500 games at first base, second base, third base, yeah, they moved in both corner outfield positions, which is yeah. actually, let, let's leave first base out of there because he was only good for about 300 of them. Right. But, the long tail of his career, you know, if you're, I think if you're under 50, like, like I am for a little while longer, um, <laughs> you, know, you, tend to, you tend to focus more on that. But he was, a, I mean, I agree with everything you said about him in the 80s, but he was a great player for a long time. Oh, you know, yeah, actually, a longer not, peak than most players. I'm, most I'm great players. not disputing that. And when I think about how he got that nickname, Charlie Hustle, that the right. Mickey Mantle and Whitey Ford were mocking him right, for the fact he ran down right. to first, that was everything that was wrong with the Yankees in this exactly. period where they were yeah. about to go how into this long decline. They should have appreciated what right. he was doing. Yeah, they could have used a guy like Pete Rose. Right, exactly. Yeah, instead of Bobby Richardson, who was right. a much purer person but right. not Couldn't half, get right. half the town. Two base percentage mm-hmm. leading off. Right, exactly. He's the only guy who could have scored 90 runs leading off for the 61 Yankees right. or, or whatever, however many it was. He didn't get to 100, that's for sure. Um you know, the Hall of Fame is a, is two things. It's a museum and it's a gallery with a bunch of plaques in it. Pete Rose is represented in the museum as an important part of baseball history, as a guy who was part of the big red machine. Right. The, the Hall of Fame thing with the plaques is very different. And as we talked about earlier, there are some players who are really great in there who have plaques, and there are some, some fairly uh, average guys who right. are in there. And I think in a way, it may be personally painful to him and to some of his fans that he hasn't gotten that honor. But I will say that we talk about P. Rose a lot more with him out than we would when he's in. And I'm not the first person to Mm. uh, observe this, and I think Bill James actually brought it up probably 30-some years ago, more than 30 years ago, when uh, Country Slaughter, Enos Slaughter, was elected to the Hall of Fame, that having him out kept his name alive more than having him in. Because the debate, Burp Lilac. Right, Burp Lilac. Yeah, and I I was going to say that next, that... 
Um, and Burt Weilman absolutely should have been in, in my opinion. Uh, tremendous pitcher, and again, as I said before, I don't care about the missing 11 or and, 13 And months. the most wins of any foreign-born pitcher. <laughs> yes, and a million strikeouts, um, more strikeouts than Walter Johnson. Yes. I mean, just a, tr- a, a, a great, great pitcher. And now he's in, and now we don't talk about right. him anymore. Right. It's, it's um, like you get sealed, sealed, sealed in a tomb. And <laughs> but Pete, a, Rose, Pete Rose is different, right? I mean, Pete Rose... Was not first of all he would because on the on the on the if he then in the gambling he's not a borderline case he's a first battle no he's in yeah guy yeah. and also he has a person I mean what, what what strikes me is watching Pete Rose as we as we get further away from say the late seventies right when he's when he started to go into decline let's say nineteen eighty one from there on we have this decline period that right. goes on and on as we get further away from that we remember one you know him playing first base and posting a a point six you know a sixty three OPS plus right right just really not being a productive player and then the weird you know autograph signings and and the and the bad the kind of Trumpian hair and all of that as opposed to which which had he not been banned from baseball you know he would have been around the game in a more in a less peripheral way that would have made put him in a better light so he he would have stuck around he would have been announcing somewhere he would have been. You know, one of these, like Joe Morgan, who, who's right. dating around for You know, there's, and it's, I don't want to bring everything back to Trump, but it's interesting that you, you brought that up because... I just talked about the hair. Well, yeah, but there's a, there's a relevance because, uh, again, there, there's a certain personality, and I'm not a, a psychiatrist, so again, I said earlier about talking about things that are out of your, your, your expertise, right. but th- there's a narcissism, I think, that doesn't allow you to be vulnerable or to make mistakes. So... Uh, after the debate the other night, for example, somebody said to Trump, do you have a cold? Why were you sniffing so much? He said, I didn't sniff. Right. Look, 100 million oh people saw him sniff. He sniffed. Okay? And, and throughout the debate, I didn't say that. Where did you get... And, and people were online. If you were, if you were following the debate on Twitter, <laughs> I didn't say that about the Chinese and a hoax. Well, there it was in a tweet. And if, if Pete, Rose, Pete Rose violated something that had been um, sacred in baseball since Judge Landis came in in 1920, and it was some baseball. I mean, I could talk another hour about the history of gambling and baseball. It was something that that the sport had struggled with going back many years before the Black Sox, and had not taken a hard line on it. And guys were given a slap on the wrist. A few guys were thrown out, but basically they were given a slap on the wrist. Were not prosecuted to the to the um, the, the level that they should have been. And so you you ultimately had the whole thing roll up in this nineteen nineteen World Series that got thrown where the integrity of the whole sport was in question, and people re- really were talking about it um, as if it was going to be like, like pro wrestling is, right. you know. In, or like in, boxing became. Like boxing. Well, and boxing was some of that, too, at that time. Uh, track and field was like and that at that time. keep in mind, Don King was that, the, the <laughs> yes. debate. Oh, my God. There were more yeah. sports That's why we're here fixed. painting the corners. In, in the early part of the 20th century than weren't fixed. Right. I think would be this, it, mm-hmm. possibly an overgeneralization, but I think that's correct. So Judge Landis did something that was very necessary, and is it as necessary in an era where players make millions of dollars and are therefore less susceptible to that? I, I don't know. Obviously, we've seen your Alex Rodriguez, as other guys that we've talked about, do things to cheat. Uh, again, whether the cheating was, was effective or not, that's a different discussion, but... There is a, a, a reason for those laws. I do think, though, had he, in retrospect, had he said, I have an illness, I did do this, uh, I'm a very sick person, I've, I've alienated a lot of people over this, the outcome might have been different where people would have been able, certainly subsequent commissioners down the line, I, I mean, it didn't help him that Bart Giamatti dropped dead at that moment, 
but might have been able to look at and say he's repentant, he has sought help, and instead it's just kind of gone on and on with denials and admissions and, and you know, three steps forward, two steps back, where it, it never really ends and he's never really taken responsibility for it. So I, I'm afraid that it's just going to go onward and he's going mm-hmm. to be in this, this twilight zone. But as Lincoln said, the, the record in that, in that period, for, you know, is un, that's unimpeachable at least. Okay. All right. Well, we've talked for a long time. Thank you again for your time. I hope you enjoyed this as much as right. I did. Yeah, I did. Absolutely. Thank you for asking. Yeah, My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Episode 4 of Painting the Corners, the Baseball and International Affairs Podcast. I want to wish everyone a happy and sweet New Year. Uh, enjoy the first round of the playoffs. With any luck, I'll be at City Field watching the Giants and Mets when this goes up. Thanks again to Steve and Tanya. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher. You can follow me at on Twitter, at Lincoln Mitchell, Tanya's at Tanya Domi, and Steve is Go Stephen Goldman. <laughs>